surprised if there are programs we already have that are having some of these benefits. Heating assistance. We never say, let's evaluate the impact of heating assistance on drug adherence. What would that even mean? It turns out, in a representative sample of seniors in America, almost half of us, 43%, are lonely. Here's the thing. These life challenges, these things that wake us stone cold up in the middle of the night, they are your health. And as a country, we need to broaden our definition of what health is to recognize that when life goes wrong, health goes wrong. Welcome to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Pioneering Ideas Podcast. I'm Lori Melliker, a director at the Foundation and the host of this podcast. We've got three conversations for you today. Three guests talking in very different ways about stress and its effects. You'll be happy to hear that they'll also offer some bold solutions. I encourage you not just to listen to these conversations. Go to rwjf.org podcast to share your ideas, questions, and reactions with us. Let's face it, life is stressful. Many of us are stressed by the challenges of caring for an aging loved one. Some of us every morning come into an inbox that is so full we have no idea how we're going to get what we need to done in the limited time that we have. A man on my subway ride this morning told me the story about how Hurricane Sandy led to a series of events that left him stressed by the challenge of putting food on the table for his children. Life is stressful, and stress affects our health. So let's talk about that. We'll start by listening to a couple of Pauls. Program Officer Paul Torini, in conversation with one of our grantees, Dr. Paul Tang. They explore a fascinating new approach to helping seniors age in place, one that might just improve the health of those who take care of them, too. Hey, Paul, how are you? Hey, Paul. So you're doing a very interesting project that's looking at patterns of electricity use among older folks to see whether changes in the patterns are signals of change in overall health. But that particular project is nested within a larger project, linkages. So talk to us first about linkages, what it's trying to do, and more than that, why is it important? Well, Paul, that's a great question. And I might give a little bit of a history. I work for the uh, David Drucker Center for Health Systems Innovation, and we are set up as a disruptive innovation center to focus on health and well-being of people in the community. Now, it's an interesting to say, well, this is a disruptive innovation center, and we're focused on health, but my gosh, that's about what the situation is for American healthcare. In a sense, you have to almost be disruptive to focus on health. And a couple that we really considered were um, obesity and aging. Now, both of them affect a lot of our population. So we did take aging as our first incubation project. So we went through a process which included ethnography and came up with a proposed solution, and that's linkages. And actually, we named that for link across the ages, link across generations. So you'll see how this really works with the entire society and how we can support successful aging. I want to pause you there for a minute because you you mentioned um, ethnography. Yeah. Why did you think that was going to contribute important information to your planning process? Well, I've had a lot of uh, experience with ethnography, and I find it to be extraordinarily valuable. I think uh, industry knows that if you just bring people in in a focus group and ask, well, what do you think you need? Although people have their opinions, they invariably don't reflect what really is going on in their lives. And so ethnography is the social anthropology methods of going and observing what really happens in everyday life. So that's exactly what we did. So we have a medical ethnographer on the team, and it turns out we found out a number of things, um, themes that are somewhat unique to Americans and American culture. So, for example, one of the quotes that was uh, a quote from a 78-year-old woman said that, you know, the problem with growing older is your world dies before you do. Hmm. And that was so piercing in the sense it was accurate and it just summed up the problem with aging in America. Very poignant. So it's very poignant. Around the same time, Carla Persinota from UCSF released a study 
that talked about loneliness. Now, loneliness is the perception of being socially isolated. It turns out in a representative sample of seniors in America, almost half of us, 43%, are lonely, according to three standardized questions. And for that lonely half compared to the non-lonely half, they had a 45% increased mortality at six years and a 60% increased rate of disability. You can obviously translate that into everything from the quality of life to the quality of life of the caregivers and their families to, um, to the cost of health care. And you can see that loneliness kills and maims more than, than smoking. So that became our mantra for the project. The problem with aging in America is that your world dies before you do, then we want to operate to open up those worlds. So when you started this and you said, well, we could pick obesity, we could pick aging, we'll pick aging, did you have any clue that, that loneliness was going to be the, uh, the key problem that you were going to focus on? Not specifically. When we delved into it, we just saw this over and over again. Is It's not that there are people declining that much in physical health or physical uh, ability. It's that the world is dying. And then you look at the factors. And you see, well, transportation, that's one of the things that gets in the way. Then you see, of course, friends do die. Uh, but also, what used to be your friends tend to, tend to ignore you. Not deliberately, but let's say, as you, as you age, you do retire from the workforce. In America, our culture is so centered around the workforce, your professional work, that when you leave, you're a bit forgotten, a bit invisible. And unlike the older cultures, we don't have the same amount of family support and, frankly, community support of seniors. So an another interesting fact is we all know that America is uh, more expensive from a healthcare point of view than any other country in the world. But the other interesting way we differentiate ourselves in America is the relative percent we spend on social service compared to care services. Mm -hmm. So we distinguish ourselves in spending a far greater amount on care services than social services. America sort of emphasizes a different part of our lives, which is the younger, productive, uh, entrepreneurial, autonomous spirit, which is good for other sectors of our economy and, and for the American culture. But one of the things we have given up, I think, is the social support of each other. Can you talk about how you designed linkages to address loneliness? Okay. So we discovered this concept called time banking. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation played a sponsor role in some of its early work. And that's the concept where uh, instead of exchanging money as currency, a time bank banks hours. So an hour of your time is worth an hour of my time, and we may exchange so it turns out a lot of people um, either enjoy to learn cooking or want to teach cooking. Another topic, topic is gardening. Another one is some people like to organize things, and of course seniors need things to be organized or even sometimes discarded. Uh, my wife participated in a time bank, and somebody, um, a daughter who, who herself is in the 70s, wanted somebody to go for a walk with her mom, who was 94, with a dog. Why? Because her mom now lives in a place that doesn't allow pets, but her mom enjoys dogs. So what happens, my wife went over and essentially the mother took the leash out of her hands and just went walking in this park and so enjoyed it. In one point, my wife described how she just sort of lifted her arms in sort of elation of just the exhilarating feeling of walking a dog again. So when she came back, she says, thank you so much. That was the best walk I've had in years. And my wife was so excited, she called me and said, I just feel so good. For this 45 minutes, and I just let somebody use my dog, it changed her life. It brought back an hour's worth of joy. And how important is that? It's, it's a small contribution that helps two people. Isn't that what the, makes the world go around? What time banking did, the software we created, is link these people and gave everybody the opportunity to have this experience. Now, if you just extrapolate that, you can see how this can scale. It can't scale in the old-fashioned, you know, you have to meet one person, you have to live near, 
But in one of the things in the modern world is we do have technology, we do have social networking, so we can actually link people who don't otherwise run into each other, but link them by a common interest. So what are some of the other features of LinkAges, in addition to this um, time-banking matching platform? Um, another feature uh, has a lot to do with health and healthcare is a personal profile. And we describe that as think of things that impact your health and your health care that your physician or your clinician or your health care team doesn't know about. And it turns out there's lots of things. So another example comes out of ethnography where one of the one of the people we visited is a patient of ours and she missed three appointments. Well, you know, people do something comes up, people miss appointments. Well it turns out this person missed three oncology appointments. And it turns out the reason why is because she her visual impairment um, meant she couldn't drive anymore, and it cost $75 for a taxi ride. So that's an example of something we capture in what we call personal profile that has meaning, does impact health, and does impact health care. So if, let's say this woman needs a ride to the doctors, and she may put out a request in the time bank for a ride to the doctor. If other people are willing to drive people to the doctors, then we may match up the person who is willing to drive with the person who needs a ride, and they both like gardening. And it's now you're seeing how we, quote, treat loneliness. We sort of find a way to satisfy some need, and that becomes the excuse, really, for us to put a couple people together who might otherwise benefit um, from their social connection. So let's dig into the electricity use pattern project. Describe this idea for us, please. Okay. We looked at what's going on in the, in the minds of seniors as they age. One of the things is they fear of loss of independence. Everyone knows people want to, quote, age in place. Well, based on our ethnography and what we learned about loneliness, we want to have them more than age in place. We want to have them age in community. But another thing that they have a fear of is the loss of the ability to function safely in their home. And we're all familiar with the ads for these devices that help by falling, I can't get up. Mm-hmm. Well, that appeals or that seems to satisfy the need for security. But if you step back for just a moment, you go, is that really what we want or need? What if we use technology to say, what if we wanted to predict the falls, not just answer the cry of help, I can't get up? We'd like to know, is mom okay, in a sense? And there's lots of signals that happen before mom has that fall. It's just we may not have the right signal detectors. So if we turn our attention to preventing these falls, from preventing the bad things, i.e. from looking at health instead of just health care, I think we would be better off. So we actually had a um, developer challenge, and that's how this idea actually originated. You know, we live in Silicon Valley, lots of innovative folks here. And our challenge, but one of the things we did is we taught them what the problem is to solve. That's what a a number of developer challenges don't do. So we said we want to find signals about whether a senior living at home is okay. If you think about it, all of us, and particularly seniors, have patterns we go through. So let's say mom gets up at 7 o'clock and fixes oatmeal on the stove every morning. Then the daughter knows that Yep, if mom does that, then she's okay. Or, or the other way is if mom doesn't do that, then she's potentially not okay, and I need to check in with her right now. And as you know, there's a lot of devices that are designed for this, but they involve installing cameras in all of the rooms or wearing a bodysuit. And It's a little intrusive. It's a little intrusive, and we already know that mom doesn't like that. So part of our um, functional spec requirement is we need to be unobtrusive, and we need to be scalable. So the idea that was proposed was to use electricity signals, or really the patterns of electricity signals, to try to figure out whether mom is okay. I didn't know my electricity signals had a pattern. Well, if you think about it, when you go to sleep, you turn all the lights up, right? Ah. Or when you get up, you turn the lights on. That's an important signal, i.e., when you go to bed, when you get up, or the sleep time actually is part of are you okay. 
So my, my electricity meter is tracking the switch on, the switch off. Well, in the old days, basically, remember, the meter person would come and read it once every month and, and see, well, how much did you use in the past month? Well, today, there's something called a smart meter that's being deployed throughout the country, and that's where we get the scalability. That transmits signals that are available every 10 seconds. And, by the way, it's available wirelessly. And that's how you can get patterns of use. The electricity yeah. company is okay with you grabbing that data? Yes. You have the, the permission of the resident, obviously. The electricity company does make it available to you or to anybody you allow. Huh. And so if you capture this and you get this frequent sampling, all of a sudden you can look at signatures of individual appliances. So if I have an electric stove and I'm making oatmeal every morning at, at 730 how do you know that that signal of increased electricity use at 7.30 is the signal that says I'm making oatmeal? Do you have to send in an ethnographer to watch people and, and track it? Well, one, an electric stove is a high-wattage device, much more than a light bulb. So, one, you can see a sudden increase in, in uh, electricity use. Then you add the other contextual information, like it's 7.30, and I know mom wakes up and cooks her oatmeal at 7.30 every day. We also ask um, family caregivers, are there things that if mom doesn't do, you would be concerned? And it turns out caregivers know this. And so our challenge to ourselves then, which is what we're doing in, in this project that you're sponsoring, is to figure out, one, can we know these things to watch out for? And two, can we capture them? So if it's what time mom gets up or how long she sleeps, that is your signal, you, the caregivers, your signal of whether mom is okay or not okay, then let's see if we can't figure that out automatically. And let's see if we can't present that to you, the caregiver, in a way that you know without having to call at that moment in time. Then the importance of this is at 7 o'clock, what's a, a caregiver, what's a daughter normally do? Probably getting her kids ready. Now, the first thing that she may think of waking up is, gosh, did mom wake up and did she get up? And you'd like to know that right away. And the only way you have to know that right now is to call while you're trying to get the kids ready. What if we could just take a look at this linkages signal and say, oh, mom got up and she's cooking her oatmeal. Then I can deal with getting the kids ready, getting them off to school. And then when I relax and mom's relaxed, I can call her in the afternoon. It just changes the life of both of these people. So we're not just looking for when mom falls. It's the 98% when mom is totally fine. That changes the daughter's or the caregiver's day, right? And then you also have the security knowing that when mom is not doing well, I'll know earlier than when she's already fallen and can't get up. So we're trying to look at can we pay attention to health instead of just health care? Can we pay attention to good events or signals that say something may happen soon rather than after they've already happened. That's the challenge we pose for ourselves. And what's really exciting is we think we have a way of discovering this in a very scalable and cheap way so that people can have a better quality of life both for the senior and for the caregiver. So, of course, this whole experiment uh, is to see does this pan out. We have some theoretical evidence that this does but we've got to see whether it happens in real life, in real people's homes, when they have different patterns. So th there's a lot of pieces that you have to build here. That's right. So we take data, electrical signals. We try to turn that into signals. More importantly, we try to turn that into meaningful signals. Meaningful to whom? Meaningful to the caregiver. And then share that in a way that is convenient in, in that caregiver's life and that would be actionable. So the primary target is the caregiver. The backup target may be the healthcare professional team. And then the caregiver can share uh, his or her concern with the healthcare team. Let's say somebody um, with heart failure, and all of a sudden we detect that they're getting up to go to the bathroom more frequently. That could be uh, something that the caregiver notices, and that might be something we teach them hey, this is something we'd like to know about, and they can share that with us. Or we can write the program so that the computer will automatically look for that kind of signal, that is, go 
in the bathroom frequently at night. So as you describe this, I hear a number of technical challenges, and I hear some social challenges, human engineering challenges as well. What are, can you talk about some of the early challenges that you've encountered trying to do this, and, and what have you learned so far? So one of the early challenges is their technical challenges of acquiring that signal, acquiring that data. Then we have to use data analytics, big data and signal processing data, to translate the what basically, that are consumed into signals like lights on, lights off, or high wattage device going off. So that's a signal processing challenge. Next, we want to add the context. We have a high wattage device going off. Well, that could be the stove. We've learned that this signal represents a stove. In the context of morning, between the hours of 7 and, and 8, that's likely cooking breakfast. That's how you add artificial intelligence into the mix and say, I'm going to interpret this as cooking breakfast. Then, as you mentioned, there's a context from a caregiver, a pattern. The caregiver says, if mom does not get up by 8 o'clock, something is going on. So she normally gets up at 7 or she normally gets up at 6, whatever the variability is. So that was where you're going to add AI again, artificial intelligence. And then the human interaction is, how do we display this? Do we display this as these, these spiky signals, or do you display it as a red, yellow, green light that says stove on, or mom got up within a half hour of the 7 o'clock hour that she normally does? Those are all the kinds of things, as you said, along the line that we're working on, and we've done some work in each one of those areas. Let's loop back up to linkages, because in a lot of ways, it's a really human-centered project. It's humanistic. It's humane. And yet here you're looking at a very technical approach to help improve and evolve the project. Some people would see that and say, I don't, it feels like a disconnect to lean on technology for something that's, that's so human-centered. You don't seem to feel that way. You don't seem to feel that discontinuity. Well, let me tell you why I don't think it is. You're right. There's a lot of efforts that are going in from the gadget first a lot of this we refer to some of the body suits etc so there there are ways of applying technology to people and i would sort of look at that as the hammer looking for a nail and as you pointed out with ethnography saying what's the problem to solve what's the human and humanistic and humane i think that was a good choice of words there problem to solve so connect is the technology it's a hidden technology so it truly is, right? It's just your electric meter that's already there. It's a hidden way, a non-obtrusive way, of just giving you a sense, you the senior, a sense of security that I'm going to continue living in my home, I'm going to continue living in my community. From the caregiver point of view, it gives you the sense of reassurance that I am keeping tabs, I can know when mom is getting in trouble, and I can know that she's having a good day today. So it just helps so many people. And all we've done is done additional analysis of things that are already flowing through the wires of your house, like in electricity. And that's what I think sort of elegant and beautiful about this, this idea. That's a great answer. So let's look out into the future a little bit. And I want to pose a bit of a problem for you. And I'll relate this back to something in my own family. One of my uncles, when he was in his mid-70s, his wife died, and he was living alone, and you know, about 18 months later or so, sort of trickled out the information that he had a girlfriend, and you know, not only were they going out to lunch and to dinner, but she was occasionally spending the night. And my, my mother and the rest of us thought it was terrific. But it had been going on for a while before he was comfortable sharing that information with the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. Now, if he had had this system operating in his house, it would have detected a change in his electricity use patterns, particularly around the nights when she was sleeping over. And yet that was something that he wasn't comfortable sharing with everybody until he was comfortable sharing it. Mm -hmm. So how do you make the system sensitive enough where someone can keep it from sharing information they're not comfortable sharing? 
good question. Um, it's the privacy thing, and, and of course, that's the reason why seniors don't want these cameras. This is an opt-in system, and we don't expect 100% of people to want to do this. So I guess the primary answer to your question is, one, to design it with the sensitivity to the privacy, and that's why we are making this non-intrusive. Second, it's an opt-in. And so you basically decide when in your life and under what circumstances. For example, if you have an admission for, for a heart attack and then you recover, you may turn the system on after, immediately after. You may turn it off after you're fully recovered. It's completely under your control. And that's, I think, the biggest thing is under your control. But with linkages, you've expanded the provision of information beyond what people would see as the traditional healthcare delivery team. You're including other people in this. So that's exactly right. And one of the, the limitations I think we've had in the, quote, medical model of thinking of things is that it's the only team that matters is the professional healthcare team. When I think that really the other important members of the team is the patient or the person and their loved ones, their caregivers. And it's only when we include everybody on the team will we make progress. So that's why it's so important to get signals from outside of the four walls of a clinic or a hospital, so the signals from their activities of daily life into this. Can we give full information back to the individual and their family as well as the professional team? Then we're really looking at health holistically and not just looking through the narrow lens of disease and sickness. We really need to move towards a culture about health in everyday life and not just uh, remain in our four walls. That was great. That was really good. Um, Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. That was terrific. What do you think? Could linkages work for you and your family or for someone you know? What about the concept of time banking? It's not new but it can probably be applied in new ways to improve health. Let us know what you think and tell us your ideas at rwjf.org podcast. You'll see a link there to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, by the way, so you can automatically get new episodes and you can explore our archive. Our next guest is Sindel Malinathan, a Harvard economist whose latest book, which he co-authored with Eldar Shafir, is called Scarcity, Why Having Too Little Means So Much. Sendel visited the Foundation recently as part of our What's Next Health speaker series and stuck around to talk with me. Before you listen, you'll want to understand a concept Sendel mentions from his book. It's something called tunneling. It's something we've all done. When you've skipped going to the gym for a week because you were studying for a really big test, when you stopped calling your friends because you were so focused on finishing up that project at work, When you stayed up late because you were trying to get something done before bed, you were in a tunnel heading toward a goal and you weren't seeing the things that you could or should be doing along the way so that when you reached the light at the end of the tunnel, you would also be healthy, pain-free, and have friends to celebrate with. That's tunneling. Now, let's hear from Sendel. So how did you get started on this uh, research trajectory? Did it start with as you start in the book with your uh, yeah. challenges about being too busy and not having enough time? Or you, you've been doing work in poverty before then, I know. I think the first pass we had on poverty was to say, oh, the poor have the same psychology as us. And let's apply what we know about behavioral economics to poverty. But at some point, it just started to feel like that doesn't feel quite right. So then we started to really invest and understand the psychology of poverty. And I still remember there was this time when we were in London, Eldar and I were trying to figure it out. And I think the first glimmer we had that there might be something similar was we were like, oh, what if it's a little bit like packing a suitcase? You you have a very big suitcase. What do you do for a trip? You throw in everything you need. You still have some room. You go and find out. Maybe a few other safety things. I had you take an umbrella, fine. You put that in, and your suitcase is packed with a lot of slack. But if you have a small suitcase, it's a very different thing. Now you make these difficult trade-offs. Will I take this or don't? You spend a lot of time packing it very carefully. And it turned out that suitcase metaphor was very helpful at the beginning to just understand, oh, there is something about having a small thing that really changes the way you even approach the entire problem. 
So in your book, you use some really specific examples about the impact of scarcity on our decision-making and performance. I wonder if you can give a, a health example. I think a few examples where scarcity by taxing bandwidth has big effects on health are drug adherence. So we think of drug adherence as this often fairly simple thing of needing to remember to take your medication. But when our bandwidth gets compromised, the first thing that tends to go is what's called prospective memory. So it's easy to forget this task. The other place where we tend to see it is there are so many good health behaviors that fit the mold of really important but not urgent. So we know that's the thing when you get time scarcity immediately disappears. So yes, it's important I get to the gym, but it's never as urgent. And that's true also of doctor's visits, preventive checkups, and I think a lot of preventive health falls under important but not urgent. From the start of the book, you established that scarcity is something we can appreciate in our own lives, especially when it comes to time. Yet we haven't given much thought until now about the effects of the psychology of poverty. Why do you think we're coming a little late to the game? So I think we all have sympathy. And I think sympathy feels like a good emotion. But it's in many ways a bad emotion because it's a distancing emotion. When we have sympathy, it's sympathy towards you, towards them. And if you look at even the pronouns that we use, it's always them. How can we help the poor? How can we help? And what that does is we know that there are very different processes we use in thinking about others. And we're very different psychologists when we think about others. For example, going back to classic social psychology, in thinking about other people, we make the fundamental attribution error, which is we think that their behavior is driven by their inherent dispositions, their personalities and their things. Why did John yell? Because he has a temper. When thinking about ourselves, why did I yell? Because I was in a bad mood. I don't have a temper. I'm in a bad We're very different. And I think sympathy kind of gets us to see people from the outside, and so we tend to design policies almost for this fictional person. Whereas once we start thinking about it for ourselves, okay, so you're busy. What would you need to manage your circumstances? Now it's me, and you actually have quite a bit of richer insight. So I think that was one reason we're late to the game, is I think we're so used to thinking about it from the outside. So the connection of scarcity was super helpful because I can't say that I understand exactly what it's like to be poor, but I can say I now understand the force that's at play, and that force is just much bigger. It's a little bit like anyone who's ever had a headache can say, I can at least now have a glimmer of what it must be like to have a disease where you're in constant pain. I now have some sense of it. And I think scarcity is similar. It'd be wrong to say my form of scarcity has the same effect as the other as being poor. I can start to feel my bandwidth taxed. And then I'll say, hmm, maybe it's time for a vacation. Maybe it's time to put this stuff down and not worry about it, take on fewer projects. It's very hard for the poor to say, you know, I'm going to take a little vacation from being poor. It's time to put that down. Or we can say I'm going to have work-life balance. Much harder for the poor to say I'm going to have poverty life balance. This poverty stuff is getting in the way. And so I think that it's almost like we have the same force so I can understand it and transplant it. And that's helpful. But you kind of need to multiply it by 10. So how do we design better policies that acknowledge scarcity and build more bandwidth? I think the first thing that I would say is there may already be policies we have that are doing things that we never bother to measure. So it's because we are ignoring bandwidth. Like take low-income single mothers. There's a history of saying, hey, maybe we should have childcare, free childcare. And those policies, when we went to evaluate them, what do we do? We said, okay, we'll give some people childcare, and then we'll see the impact on labor supply of the mothers. And we saw something, and we said, is it worth the cost-benefit? But if one of the biggest bandwidth taxes was getting childcare, it's as if we did this thing, it eased bandwidth, and we didn't even measure its biggest benefit. We measured this one material benefit. But the biggest benefit might have been, wow, now this woman is freer of mind. And once you're freer of mind, it might have shown up in small ways in many places that added together could have been quite huge. 
maybe we created six IQ points in this woman. So for the subset of them who are diabetics, we increase adherence by 5%. For the subset of them who have children, maybe they in various ways became better parents. Some of them read more to their kids. Some of them didn't snap at their kids more. Some of them were just much more emotionally expressive. Whatever the ways in which bandwidth was training. So we might have had this huge effect. And we had a chance of seeing it if we just said, hey, why don't we actually do the bandwidth impact? Why don't we measure what happened to self-control and cognitive capacity? And so I think I wouldn't be surprised if there are programs we already have that are having some of these benefits. Heating assistance. That is, the winter comes. It is terrible. Now you have a $500 heating bill. Some states have at least limited heating assistance. It's a big bandwidth creator. We never say, let's evaluate the impact of heating assistance on drug adherence. What would that even mean? So uh, there are so many things that we need all Americans to do, preventive care, care that will affect their future health, not necessarily their urgent needs related to health. How do we think about putting these kinds of services and care at front of mind, particularly for those who are living in poverty or in other conditions of scarcity? Use the words important and urgent. I think that is exactly the problem of these things. Is even when they're important, they're not urgent. And I think there's a few things to keep in mind. So the first is, a lot of us look at the lack of the behavior and we assume that the problem is people don't know the value of it. Which is already a presumption that if they knew that it was important, then it would get done. My guess is with a lot of these behaviors, people know it's important. I think that when you find situations where people already want to go, there are so many ways we can say, let's get the, into the tunnel. So one way you can get into the tunnel is by creating so almost these crying voices. Oh my God, here's a utility bill. Oh my God, I need it. So if we could find ways to create these crying voices so that people get them done. I think one of the problems we have is that the benefits of going to the gym and the, the health conditions that they address aren't very salient. Like I can tell you you have high cholesterol. It doesn't, nothing feels different. In contrast, if I had a headache, I would absolutely go and get some Advil and take it. So the question is, how can we create technologies that create the equivalent of blaring alarm when the cholesterol is high, and that is mitigated, actually, whatever that thing is, by going to the gym. Like, what is that blaring alarm? And I think we're starting to get to that point because we have so many more technologies that are able to kind of real-time interact with us. But maybe the, the final message is probably more negative, which is once you look at it this way and you look at it as, well, what is attention going to be focused on, you kind of realize that attention is the scarce commodity. And I think we're being naive about all the positive things to be done. Which of the most positive things are so positive that we're willing to use up attentional real estate on? So you're the founder of Ideas 42, which applies the best minds in behavioral economics to some of society's most pressing issues. You say that all good work is predicated on asking the right questions. What questions should we be asking if the good product we're trying to create is a culture of health? I think the first question I would ask is, is there something loaded in the phrase, the culture of health? And so I feel like the word culture makes us look at desires, and we ought to be looking at impediments. And sometimes maybe it's like people talk about food deserts, but some of the impediments might be much more like granular. I don't know what it is. When I'm in Europe, I find it much harder to snack than when, I, than when I'm here. And some of that is regulations that are just seem small but are pretty important, like store placement regulations make it much harder in Europe to just have fast food places everywhere. And that's just, you know, it's already the beginning. Like, I go to an airport in the U.S., and it is really hard not to have a Cinnabon. I mean, it is, I mean, it is just there. It smells good. It's right there. I don't have the same problem at Frankfurt Airport. So you can't eat on the metro in D.C., but you can in New York City. Hadn't is that right? About that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so it's much easier to snack in New York City than it is in that's Washington really and probably a lot of other places. I hadn't thought of that either. Drive-throughs are another example. Yeah. I remember once, and this is a little related to culture, but I don't think it's a culture like this changes very quickly. I remember once I was in Italy, and I was walking down the street, and I had bought something to eat, and I was eating as I was walking. And my Italian friend's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just eating. He's like, he thought I was so uncultured. And you can just see, it's like, there aren't many things being sold that make you easy to do that. I had to go out of my way to do this. And so then, that's the norm. But it's like littering. Once you have enough things that you start selling, that it's easy to do that, enough people will start doing it, and that's the new normal. And in a way, like, you wouldn't even look twice at seeing someone walk down the street while eating. 
seems like the influence of behavioral economics has grown exponentially in recent years, with everyone trying to find the right nudge or design better choices. What are the top do's and don'ts that people should consider when looking to apply behavioral economics to their work? Oh, that's a great question. I'd say the biggest danger that I feel right now that is very real is I think behavioral economics has been really oversold because I think there are a few salient examples where the data is good and the impacts are big. Then there's a bunch of salient examples that have come out in recent times where when you scratch the, scratch the surface, the data is just bad. I mean, so what that gives people the impression is, oh, yeah, we should be able to do this one behavioral change and get huge impacts. That's just not realistic. I mean, it's just not going to happen. What's going to happen is things that have good benefit to cost ratios. We do something, it changes adherence by 5%. It costs us not that much, so it's a big boom. We're not going to do something and change adherence by 50%. There's no magic bullets. People need to have much more moderated expectations. I think the other part that I, is another don't, is that I feel like people take an approach that's very seat-of-the-pants-like. Well, you know what might be good here? Social norms. Oh, well, why not try this? The problem is there's a lot of things you can try, and why should you try any one of them? So it's kind of almost like throwing darts, just like throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall. You have to actually invest time in diagnosing what's the problem. So we say, like I'm throwing out ideas about culture of health. It's always a good place to start to throw out ideas. But we should do it like we would anything else. Let's go and survey people. Let's actually ask, what are the intentions? Maybe we would find, no, that's wrong. In fact, people don't know much about healthy food. So then we say, oh, that's the bottleneck. People don't understand. But I feel like people, because they have this view that nudges are supposed to be like these simple, cheap things that you do, they're not willing to invest the resources at the diagnosis stage of actually investing and understanding what psychologies are at play, and then using that knowledge to build an intervention. I think that's the biggest danger we face right now. And it shows up, it shows up quite a bit even in funding structures. Like if I were to write a proposal and say, I want to try this nudge, I'm just persuasive about it, and then I want a lot of money to run it and test it. People would be like, oh great, all I have to do is convince the person that it's worth trying. If I were to say, here's a big problem, I would like money for three to six months to go through a diagnostic process to come up with the nudge to then test and try, people would be like, no, oh, do you really need to go through all that? Why don't you just tell us what you're going to do? I'm like, well, I don't want to make up something. It's quite, it's, I don't think that idea has been sold as fully as it ought to be. Are there any macro changes that have affected scarcity over time? And do you think that it will, how will it evolve in the future? You know, I often think, like, I remember when I was younger, I would take a bus to go from Ithaca to Rochester. And it was boring, because I would sit on this bus. I couldn't read because I'd get motion sick, and I would just be bored. And when I was younger, I remember being bored a lot. Now, I'm never bored, or almost never. And I don't, it's not an age issue. I think people who are that age now, when I was then, now, they're never bored. So there's almost a death of boredom, which is actually really bad. Because yes, I was bored, but that's when my mind was wandering, and I was thinking about random stuff, memories were getting consolidated, every once in a while an interesting idea was had. So if you actually look at it, the very texture of something as simple as mind wandering has changed. Like if we could measure mind wandering over time, what we'd see, I would conjecture, is sometime in the early 21st century, the amount of mind wandering that humans engaged in fell off a cliff. That's weird, because mind wandering has huge benefits. And I think that change is so central to everything. So for example, it could be that I could focus your attention on something by sending you a letter. Now how could I ever focus your attention on anything? The sheer amount of inbounds we get. So there's this sort of congestion of the mind that's happened, and I think that terrain is changing everything. So how do you think about the equation there? So we're getting, we're not bored anymore, and we're getting things done, and we're being entertained, and we're keeping our kids entertained, and allowing devices to babysit them, allow us to get other things done. But how do we think about, on the other side of that, the fact that we're taking away the value that comes from mind wandering for ourselves and also for our kids, that we are developing children who are not able to stare out the window without hitting each other or getting really frustrated and anxious? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's funny that many people or some people all say, okay, it's important for me to go to the gym. It's painful, but it has long-term physical benefits. Going to the gym was not an intuitive concept. In fact, people used to view it as this weird thing that strange people did. 
But we needed evidence, and we were fully convinced eventually. I think you'll start to see in the next 50 years something similar happening with mental fitness. Because just locally doing what feels right for the mind doesn't necessarily create the best long-term fertile mind. So I'll give you an example. Mind-wandering feels a bit abstract. But there are studies after studies that show if you take 15 minutes every evening and simply just write in a journal that only you see, and you write whatever you want, it has huge long-term mental health benefits. Now, that evidence is not very well known. But you can imagine, it's a little bit like the gym. It's a little gym for the mind. And I think that hopefully over the next 50 years, we start to value these type of things. Because that's kind of making it feel like, oh, nostalgic, being bored on a bus. Being bored on a bus is painful. It's not enjoyable. It's as bad as the gym. I mean, it is not, it's not nice to sit there saying, sometimes I drive, and I don't have a podcast, and you're sitting there, you're like, I have an hour left to go. It's not fun. And that's the most important thing. But it's a thing that's not fun locally but that has some nourishing, enriching effects in the long run. And I think that that understanding hasn't been developed. It's not like people know those studies. It's not like those studies have been done fully yet. So I think that'll be one of the big changes hopefully we'll see that will get us to value this. You may have heard our next guest, Ted Med Talk or attended her top-rated panel at Health 2.0. Maybe you know her as the founder of Eliza Corporation. If you don't know who I'm talking about, get ready to love Alexandra Drain. Always game to be a pioneer, Alex agreed to be the first up in our personal essay series, a new feature on each episode showcasing innovators' personal visions for building a culture of health. I do a terrible job taking care of myself. I eat like crap rarely get anywhere close to the suggested seven or eight hours of sleep, routinely drink more than the one recommended glass of wine a night, and recently canceled my annual physical because I didn't feel like getting weighed. Yes, I just said that out loud, and you can feel free to judge me. Yet every day, I and all of the other genuinely good humans who work in the healthcare space belly up to our desks, filled with all the best intentions. Our job is to help others be healthier, but if we took a moment to look at our own behavior, how are we doing? If you're like me, not so good. So the question I always ask myself is, if I'm behind on my preventive screenings, if I'm not filling my plate with all the right colors, and if I'm routinely choosing the snooze button over a date with my treadmill, how could I expect anyone else to be doing better? I work in the healthcare space. I'm over-educated, over-resourced, over everything, and I still can't get it right. Which begs the question, what gives? Why am I feeling so miserably at this be healthy thing? I'll tell you why. It's because I have a life, and that life can sometimes be an absolute mess. You're lecturing me on my blood pressure, and I'm digging my nails into my thighs in a panic over something going on at work. There's a name for this phenomenon, this act of asking people to operate at the top of their game when they don't even have the basics shored up. It's called Maslow's Hierarchy, and it's not a new concept. Way back in 1943, Maslow's Hierarchy gave legitimacy to a disconnect many of us have lived. If your 94-year-old mother with Alzheimer's just moved in, you hate your boss, and you're pretty sure your partner's having an affair, are you really thinking about your high cholesterol? If your car is breaking down seemingly just to spite you, you can't get to work to make the money you need to fix it, and you're worrying about your kid's safety every time they walk home from school, are you rushing to cook a meal that meets the daily recommended this or that? Are you really prioritizing getting your colon cancer screening, or are you doing your best just to survive? Here's the thing. These life challenges, these things that wake us stone cold up in the middle of the night, they are your health. And as a country, we need to broaden our definition of what health is to recognize that when life goes wrong, health goes wrong. Check yourself. Doesn't that resonate on some fundamental level? Haven't you lived through that cycle? Well, guess what? The data supports that this idea is actually a valid reality. When I was at my company, Eliza, we did everything we could to use technology to help people make healthier decisions. And in the process, we not only did over 1 billion interactions with real people about their health, we also did over five years of research on this very topic, which we referred to as the unmentionables, to highlight how undiscussed was this incredibly important stuff. In collaboration with the very reputable think tank, Altarum, we came up with an index specifically designed to measure the impact of your life on your health, 
and we call that the vulnerability index. The basic premise is to measure the presence and magnitude of things like financial stress or caregiver stress or relationship stress against your personal ability to cope, which includes how much of the positive coping mechanisms you practice, like spending time with friends or exercising or doing something to help you feel centered, things we call buffers, versus the amount of time you spend doing not-so-great stuff, like having trouble sleeping or feeling blue or turning to substances, things we call magnifiers. We were able to show that when you control for age and gender, individuals who were highly vulnerable, so experiencing lots of life challenges with not enough good coping behaviors and too many bad ones, were over 2.6 times as likely to have diabetes, 2.9 times as likely to have back pain, 5 times as likely to be struggling with depression, and costing the system five times as much. And just this past year, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, in collaboration with NPR and Harvard School of Public Health, released a study on stress showing the very same relationship between health and life, and data about the numbers of us experiencing stress that are staggering. This stuff is real. Life happens. We need to broaden our definition of health to include life. We need to formally acknowledge that helping someone survive a divorce is just as important as helping someone with their diabetes. We need to expend the same amount of energy we might on teaching someone about cardiovascular health with teaching them tricks for surviving the overwhelming exhaustion and isolation of caring for an aging parent. We need to do this not just because it's kind, not just because the data supports it, but because if we don't, we are never going to see the kind of outcomes we are all working so earnestly to achieve. And because if we do, we just might find ourselves living a far healthier and happier reality. And isn't that what building a culture of health is all about? My name is Alexander Drain, and I double-dog dare you to do all you can to help build a culture of health. Let us know your thoughts while you're at it at rwjf.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Paul Tang, Sindel Malinathan, and Alexandra Drain for joining us. You can subscribe to RWJF's Pioneering Ideas podcast on iTunes, and you can join the discussion about the ideas in today's episode and find related links all at rwjf.org podcast. Be well.